And this is the Human Enhancement Podcast with your host, Jeffrey Wu. And we're back with a renewed vigor with our first guest of the year, Ira Pastor. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because uh, Ira has an impressive background being in the pharmaceutical world for over the last 30 years and has built uh, quite a range of experience being plugged in on the pharma side, as well as looking at the future in human enhancement, being a member of the World Economic Forum in Human Enhancement, and other, uh, I would say, community and, and thought leadership groups around the notion of human enhancement. I think that's always been a little bit of sci-fi, uh, but you know, folks like yourself and folks like us, we're, we're working on making that sci-fi reality. So excited to kick off the new year with this conversation, Ira. Great. Well, I, I'm very excited to have the conversation too, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you know, it's, it's interesting to, you know, hear your background story here. So typically I would say with my conversations with, with folks in the pharma industry, uh, very, very focused on medicine. You know, I think that's a very rigorous, expensive, slow process. And I think when we talk about human enhancement, uh, very vague, uh, perhaps I would argue, you know, maybe it started off less rigorous, but I think more and more technology and science is becoming, you know, as rigorous as just straight pharmaceuticals or straight medicine. How did you get interested or, or, or were you always interested in, in the notion of enhancing human performance? Um, ever, ever since a, a very young age, uh, I, I joke that, you know, growing up, I was a, a big fan of comic books and science fiction. And, you know, whether it was uh, superheroes or uh, people that were traveling around the uh, the solar system. Um, I was always rather intrigued by the the human possibilities. Um, I grew up in a family business here in the Philadelphia area that was involved in community pharmacy. So it was sort of preordained that I went into uh, that at an early age. I became a pharmacist and I went to business school. Uh, and then I spent the last, as you mentioned, a few decades in the more traditional pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, it, it was a fascinating place to hang out. But at the same time, you know, I got a little dismayed by the fact that uh, in generating, you know, a trillion dollars a year uh, and, gener and spending 200 billion more on new R&D, we were having a pretty bad success rate. Uh, at dealing with and curing the chronic degenerative diseases that are primarily responsible for our suffering, degeneration, and death. Right. Uh, so, you probably saw the you recent know, news with Pfizer pulling out of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's research, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I just had a, an argument online with somebody about this that said, well, that's a good thing. I said, no, this is a horrible thing because it's one thing to for a big pharma company to get out of a an area that's not core anymore or something that, you know, we pretty much, you know, uh, painkillers or what have you. But when you uh, have the, you know, the fourth largest drug company in the world abandoning what is arguably uh, probably the biggest problem we have now and is coming in the next 10 to 20 years, yeah. that's not a good sign. Yeah, that's concerning, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a problem for everyone. So... But yeah, so you know, I wanted to do something a little different after the first 30 years. I, you know, uh, I was not content with just marketing the next cholesterol-lowering drug or uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. And I really wanted to put together. I know that uh, the last hundred years has been full of fascinating research, and a very small percent, which is ever translated into anything, 
uh, I really wanted to dive back in, not just think about the future, but dive back into the past. And when I talk about the past, I talk about the uh, three plus billion years of biological evolutionary discoveries that exist on this planet. Um, what I mean by that are the uh, wide range of organisms that inhabit this little blue marble with us uh, called Earth, um, which from a health and wellness perspective are much further advanced than we are, uh, whether that be uh, the organisms that exhibit complex forms of regeneration and are effortlessly able to regenerate limbs, spinal cord, uh, complex organs like the heart, uh, eyeballs, and even large parts of the brain. Uh, simultaneously, we are very interested in the, uh, the resilient organisms, the ones that, uh, you know, get cancer and shrug it off as if it was the, the common cold uh, and don't die from it in, you know, huge numbers, like 8 million a year like we do. And then lastly, of course, the, uh, at the far end of the spectrum, as you're aware, the, there are organisms on this planet that do not age. Uh, there are those that age in reverse. And there are a few that technically, you know, even die and are reborn. And so, you know, needless to say, we as humans <laughs> are very bad at doing any of this type of stuff today. Uh, we ask the question, you know, what can we do to um, push these types of discoveries forward, this type of research, and not get caught up in the traditional pharmaceutical model of the single magic bullet? You know, of creating those little pills that have a single compound that do one thing, because we have to tell you, you know, if your arm falls off, uh, it's not going to regenerate with a single magic bullet. It's going to be a much more complex therapeutic intervention than we currently think of today from big pharma. Um, so that is, in essence, sort of the basket of how <laughs> all of this came together and why we decided to go down this path. And that vehicle is called BioCork, and that's focused on regeneration of tissue and cells. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a little more than uh, regeneration is part of it. We, we call and we talk about the three R's, uh, regeneration, which is the, the big sexy one. But then there's even the larger one, which we call reversion, which is basically the ability to take cell B that is damaged in some format uh, where you don't want a regeneration event, uh, but you want a repair event. You want to erase the history of what was. Uh, and go back in time and start over, uh, whether that be a, taking a cancer cell and erasing the epigenetic and genetic damage that has occurred to create a cancer cell in the first place. Uh, and then lastly, the last R is the rejuvenation and basically how we can take the understanding of how we reprogram and remodel cells, tissues and organs, and use it for the ultimately the big picture down the road and, and turning back biologic age. So what are your most promising... Uh you know, compounds or, or, or interventions in those areas. Yeah. So just a, uh, just the background. So we are focused primarily on creating what are called combinatorial biologics. So simple, simple term, if you think of any biologic product today, uh, a therapeutic protein like a growth hormone or insulin or a vaccine. However, we are looking to mix combinations of biologics to affect more than one target. And the reason being complex events uh, like regeneration are not single target events. So we really need to think uh, beyond the single sort of single chemical, single target. 
So we were developing biologics, and our lead candidate is something that we call BQA, uh, also known as a bioquantine. Um, and what we are doing in this particular case uh, is taking a series of peptides and proteins that are found in ooplasm that are normally involved in the reprogramming dynamic that we see early on in the development of the human embryo. Uh, the human embryo is the only place uh, in humans where you actually see a reversal of aging. Uh, all our children are born aged zero when they're born, uh, and they do not come out of the womb after nine months with the chronic degenerative diseases of old age. You don't have babies born with Alzheimer's disease, for example. So uh, we studied a long history, the last 80 years of ooplasm reprogramming dynamics, which have primarily been studied in the Petri dish for cloning purposes, and said, you know what, we are going to now access those moieties, and instead of using it as a, a Petri dish technology or a stem cell technology, we're going to look at therapeutic opportunities and how we can use these bioactive substances as therapeutics that can be specifically formulated in different delivery vehicles to either regenerate uh, tissues. So these uh, peptides or, are, you know, peptides found in human embryo that for whatever reason, you know, age out in a, a fully grown adults. And we're figuring out here how to reintroduce those compounds back into an adult. Exactly. The uh, ooplasm research has gone on for, since the 1940s, um, but it's just one of those things that uh, stayed in the Petri dish. I mean, John Gurdon in the UK just got the Nobel Prize for, for this in 2012, uh, many years, you know, decades after he made his original discoveries. So things took time, and we're basically taking the sort of the next step and saying, look, this is fascinating work, but we want to get it out of the Petri dish. Um, so I'm curious how you engage with skeptics around, you know, we're more complicated than a starfish arm. You know, a starfish can regenerate a leg or even, you know, completely like clone themselves essentially in, exactly. in form two. Um, so, you know, I, I, one could make the argument that, of course, humans seem to be a little bit more complicated than a starfish. And then two, the reason why we don't have all these undifferentiated cells ready to differentiate is as a, as a way to stop cancer. Right. If you have undifferentiated growth that goes out of control, that's uh, essentially cancer. So how do we overcome sort of nature's natural uh, inhibitions on regeneration? You bring up an excellent point, and I'm, I'm going to throw something back at you just because this is sort of a – you brought up the double-edged sword of regeneration and cellular proliferation. But the most fascinating point is that the most cancer-resilient organisms in the world – on this planet are the regenerators. Uh, and there's a fascinating paper, it was published out of Tufts University a couple of years ago about regeneration. Um, is it the cause of cancer or is it actually a potential cure? Because you take a regenerative organism, any regenerated dynamic, and this goes for not just the parts of organisms that regenerate, but this is also shown in mammalian embryos. You can stuff it full of cancer cells. Uh, and when the baby is born or when the limb regenerates at the end, cancer is not there because the microenvironment reprograms the tissue uh, and has this wonderful capability to organize in what is needed and out what is not. So what we have, the direction we're coming from, and it's a great thing you bring this up, because a lot of people along this path that have sort of gone this way in the past have said, well, let's just find out what the genes are. <laughs> and then we'll just, we'll do some genetic engineering and we'll turn up those genes and everything should be hunky-dory. But 
that's not the case. Because what you do when you dive in, you find out what are all the genes that are active. Um, majority of them are oncogenes, right? <laughs> because they're the same genes for continual proliferation. So the answers don't have to do with how we stimulate uh, large amounts of the regenerative substances per se, but more on the genomic architecture that controls them. Uh, and basically, um, how those genes are turned on and off in the right tissues at the right time. So yeah, we're not interested in uncontrollable regeneration, and we don't want to turn you into a starfish or a planarian or you know, a newt. But keep in mind that genetically, we're all pretty similar. And you know, it's one of the things the Human Genome Project showed us 20 years ago is it's not much different in the difference in the genes. The difference they found was in the architecture around the genes. And, and this, uh, in our opinion, uh, and that is in essence what you find now when you so, shift So when you mean the architecture, you mean like the epigenetics, you mean you know, the peptides floating around in the substrate or exactly. where DNA is floating around, how these things are unfolded, what's being the, expressed. Okay. The, the epigenetics, the chromosomal architecture, one step above that, the uh, biomolecular architecture of the intracellular fluid, uh, of the biophysical dynamics of reaction diffusion within a cell, which then takes their cues from the tissue level. It, it, go, it goes a long way. I talk about these vertical hierarchies. So um, I, I'm a, I am not a huge fan of reductionism in biology. Yeah, uh, bio is complicated. <laughs> biology is very complicated. The pharmaceutical industry made a huge profit uh, the last hundred years on reductionist thinking and, and breaking everything down to the smallest level. But hey, uh, as we say, uh, necessary but not sufficient. Our genes are definitely necessary, but they're by no means sufficient to describe uh, how Jeffrey Wu or Ira Pastor becomes <laughs> who we are. Uh, there's a higher level of architecture uh, there that is responsible for that. And so unless we pay attention to those levels and how they communicate with one another um, on up to, you know, the biodynamics of the, you know, the extracellular fluids and the uh, extracellular matrix, we don't have answers to these problems. And so that's why we we're taking, I don't use the word that much, but we much more holistic view on biology. Uh, I think a lot of the systems bio people really have, uh, are going in the right direction with yeah, this. Absolutely. So. I think, I mean, it seems to be like, you know, where a lot of the investment and attention in Silicon Valley and, and abroad is focused on systems approach to biology, right? Like, I, I think people, I don't know anyone that would argue that it's, you know, this is a very complicated network where any one intervention is going to cascade across, you know, a number of endpoints. So, so where's the data? You know, how far along are is is the ooplasm uh, approach? Uh, have you been, you know, work, working on cell lines, animal models, human models? How how far out do we get to see uh, uh, this 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 out there? Yeah. So we are, you know. If we sort of divide up the company uh, into really three parts today, we number one, we are a U.S.-based uh, biopharma development shop that um, has a three-year program for the clinic in the United States. Um, we have spent the last several years in the petri dish, in animal models, mice, rats, guinea pigs, some cats. Um, uh, and we have been moving forward sort of biotech development 101, but this is the United States and things take time just in terms of everything that needs to be done to get into the clinic here. Uh, but we've been moving forward uh, specifically focusing on oncology models, uh, the kidney, uh, which is a major target of ours, and then the central nervous system and, and, and looking at 
the dynamics of both de-differentiation and redifferentiation in in vivo models. Um, secondarily, um, while we are not a consumer packaged goods company per se, uh, needless to say, that is a huge industry in its own right, and we have a lot of interest and hence partners that are coming to the table uh, that are interested in the non-Rx opportunities today uh, in terms of skincare uh, because of the rejuvenation, regeneration angle. Uh, and we've been active uh, in research on that front, uh, much more in the Petri dish originally, but then, you know, the unique so the idiosyncratic nature of that business, uh, you have the ability to move to human testing uh, quite quickly and have done uh, a lot on the skin, looking beyond sort of efficacy, but at a lot of the things you have to deal with when you get into the cosmetic business. We are also very active um, in, in sort of traveling around the world and learning about other regulatory systems because, um, you know, if, if you can get a product into clinical development, uh, two years faster in other countries nowadays, uh, you have this really unique dynamic occurring, as I'm sure you're aware, with regard to the globalization of medical training and research. And when you see things like, you know, Harvard Medical School now operating in uh, Dubai uh, or uh, Will Cornell Medical Center in Qatar and Newcastle University in Malaysia, uh, it's a really global integrated system of, of R&D now. And so, we are out there uh, learning, uh, talking to uh, hospitals and other research partners and saying, you know, what are the possibilities in the 200 plus other countries out there? Because, you know, we're, the, we're U.S. based. We love the U.S., but um, it's can we jumpstart the process a yes, little bit where, quicker, where do we jumpstart the process? Yeah, exactly. So these are sort of the three pillars of, of what we're about. Uh, we're moving as fast as we can in terms of you know, bio 101. It's yeah. just the nature of the business. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just curious. I mean, are there just cool anecdotes with your animal models that you could share with, 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 with our listeners here? I mean, you know, you know, maybe I'm asking for like asking for like a freak story, but like, you know, are you, re, are you regenerating, eye, you know, rat eyes or, you know, rat arms or, or how far along on the animal models are we? No, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we, we don't do anything in the ophthalmology, but we have done a lot of, uh, I know these models are kind of nasty, but, uh, the traumatic brain injury models in, in rats and guinea pigs and, uh, you know, <laughs> The animal cruelty people don't like this stuff too much, but uh, you know you end up hitting the uh, the poor little animals in the head with the standards big weight drop model, and uh, you know there's control groups and there's drug groups, and you study the brain and the sort of the growth morphology, and then at the same time uh, having them run through like maze. Are you doing you know sort yeah, more, of maze more times? Water, more okay. water maze testing, swimming, and so forth. Uh, a lot of that comes into play, and um, not only that, but in things like traumatic brain injury, uh, there's a nice crossover with Alzheimer's because beta amyloid and other related neurofactors upregulated in brain injury. Um, so you get to study sort of a wide range of gene expression. Um, there's been some, we've had some pretty promising uh, results in those models. Um, the um, cancer work is equally fascinating in the terms of just how uh, tissue remodeling occurs and how sort of over time you see sort of the uh, you know, what's described nowadays more of this sort of the cellular competi competition dynamic about how if you have a mixture of cells, how one group can outcompete the other and kill off the other, which is a really, it's a very new area. 
um, Diego Moreno's group in Spain is uh, is is a be- is a very major thought leader in the area. But it's really fascinating. I mean, this is what this is what's occurring in our bodies right now as we're speaking, and how tissue that begins to go wrong or exhibit the wrong properties uh, gets you know. Shut, you know, if they shut it up and other cells in the microenvironment kill it. Uh, so uh, this has been, you know, two rather fascinating areas. Uh, you know, a side anecdote, anecdote in which we haven't really delved into too much, but are the, um, you know, some of the original work in in brain removal, <laughs> uh, which goes back to the 1970s at University of Indiana. We haven't recapitulated any of that yet because it, it, it's been sort of off of our radar. But uh, people forget that, you know, um, uh, frog experiments were done at University of Indiana with salamanders and actually brain, complete brain removal is one of those things that sort of got us looking in the area of sort of neuro-regeneration de- de- um, in humans. Right. It's but, like, what, one flew over the cuckoo's nest or are those books, you're just like, you know, just lobotomying people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and here you have a case of, you know, pulling the brain out entirely and you know, little salamanders don't die. <laughs> it, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, a lot, once again, it's one of the, one of the uh, sort of things I spend my spare time on, you know, sort of reading up on the history of what came before, but um, it's just really fascinating what nature can do um, when when stressed. Let's look at that. I'm curious in, in terms of getting your thoughts on, so you know, if these newborn animals and certain animals have these peptides in the ooplasm that are so helpful, why does uh, nature have these disappear as humans turn into adults? It, it it really disappears much earlier than that. Okay. It, it disappears, you know, after the first couple of weeks of uh, your conception. Um, you know, why don't we, you know, I get the question, why don't we have any complex regenerative capabilities? Um, I think most of people in the evolutionary biology world will say, well, you know, we've been, during that sort of reptile slash mammalian transition that occurred, however, you know, tens of millions of years ago, um, and when we became such major bleeders, um, and we, you know, we're a species that bleeds very rapidly, we die very rapidly from loss of blood. Uh, when that happened, we, from an evolutionary perspective, became very good at laying down scar tissue, um, and very good at fibrosis uh, and thrombosis, um, and and sort of evolution went that way with us. Uh, but you know, we do still reprogram. I mean, that is the, people talk about sort of cancer and the immune system all the time. It's not really the immune system that keeps cancer development at bay throughout our lifetime. It is the, as I mentioned before, the cellular competition in those microenvironments. Uh, You know, when cell A somewhere in our body starts to go wrong and starts, you know, expressing certain oncogenes, it's cell B, C, D, E, and F that sit around it that tell it to either calm down or kill it. and, and it does this not by, t- you know, doesn't give that cell 10 milligrams of drug X. It secretes uh, a whole set of paracrine factors that say, you know, get get into shape or we're going to eliminate you. Uh, and, and so we do have some of this reprogramming ability, just not highly complex. So obviously can deal with single cells, but limbs, no. Uh, hmm. We don't have that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think with evolutionary biology, I think, you know, it's it's always very theoretical, right? Is you you can't really, you know, I think that's like the critique on that on that area of inquiry. But it seems to stand to reason that you have a local optima around. Okay, 
scar tissue is going to let you know bleeding out animals survive longer and you know the the evolution doesn't have a goal it's just if there was any goal it's just passing down passing down genes and, and, and as part of natural selection so that doesn't mean that we're optimizing for jeffrey Wu or ira pastor or you know the, you listener out there to live forever it's optimizing how you pass your genetic material to the next and, and sustain that um Cool. I'm, I'm actually curious about, you know, scoping out. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, very promising pipeline you have there, both on the RX world and on, on the consumer world. Um, but it seems like, you know, you know, from what we've seen in our community and just the broader discussion, there's clearly a, a growing attention with uh, world leaders around the possibility, the promise around enhancing humans. And, and this dives into your work with the World Economic Forum. Um, you know, it seemed to be a relatively new council and it's, 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 it's uh, you know, what is that experience like? Um, is it, you know, how real is that? Is it, you know, more on the theoretical, let's talk about this? Or is this like, hey, can we, should we actually start talking about policies that government should be considering for regulating this this field yeah it's a it's a lot of uh talking and think tank type stuff a lot of uh conferences and conference call discussions about um you know all of the issues uh, social economic um ethical uh that are going to be coming up uh, whether it is uh, biotech related or whether this has to do with the energy or agriculture or everything else that affects us as humans uh so yeah i mean there's it, it it's uh it's it's fascinating fascinating discussions whether you know there's anything completely actionable in the short term that's coming out of it uh, not yet but uh the fact that you know it is a target of such an organization and um you know that they realize that um you know the genie's been let out of the bottle and this is happening uh, on many different fronts in many different forms, um, I, I think it's a good thing. Uh, and there's there's a lot of interesting people at the table from uh, very different backgrounds. You know, hospital systems in India. You have people from AARP, from the Gates Foundation. Um, just to, you know, they're bringing together a really broad constituency of uh, thinkers to talk about these issues. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know broadly, you know what technologies out there are you most excited about? Uh, in terms of you know one, you know, I, I think uh, you know people talk about CRISPR a lot, but you know how how you know what is your sense on on the broad scope of technologies out there? You know, I think you know ketosis is interesting from a, like just from a lifestyle perspective. You know, we're working with ketone esters, which you know jump starting ketosis is interesting. I mean, in in your experience and in, in what you've seen out in the world, you know, what what excites you? I'm very um, well. I'm I'm very interested in in all lifestyle um, issues and all lifestyle changes. I you know before doing this, I spent several years in the uh, the phyto uh, medicinal um, area, and I'm still till this day a very big proponent. Of, uh, of natural products and sort of the incorporation of uh, anything into our daily health and wellness routines that has to do with the natural world. Uh, you know, we had the first hundred years uh, an industry still that is based heavily on plants, bacteria, and fungi. But when we see some of the things that are happening, whether it be with the microbiome, uh, whether it be with the virome, 
uh, or you know these new eye topics, uh, interkingdom signaling, how a living signal from one species can actually affect the genome of another, uh, semiochemical communication. Uh, all of these areas, I think, are sort of another dimension to the natural product sphere that are extremely important for us to keep in mind. And the interesting, the interesting with the microbiome work, uh, which I find fascinating, is that it is an example of you know a case where hey. The drug, as I mentioned before, in 2018 or 2025, whatever, is going to look different. And here, you know, they're talking about drugs, which are, in essence, cocktails of living, you know, bioactive materials uh, in terms of that. Um, the other area that I'm quite interested in, uh, and I'd like to see how far it goes, um, is the um, area of so-called you know, electroceuticals. Uh, my, my former employer, GlaxoSmithKline, recently invested, I think it was $75 million in this area, where they're basically saying, look, you know, uh, let's see if we can get the drug out of the equation entirely. Uh, you know, the drug is just a chemical and it's just sort of a stupid substance that doesn't really do much except transfer information between point X and point Y. Uh, and can we... Uh, interfere without the drug substance. And, and, and the reason this is so interesting to me is that, you know, if you and I uh, were to go back 100 years in a time machine and, say, you know, go to some biology lab, you would be hearing all about that type of stuff because we didn't really know about molecular biology and other things. We'd be hearing about physics, uh, forces and fields and, and all sorts of this interesting nomenclature that is yeah, we don't hear about nowadays in biology labs. Yeah, it reminds but, me of college physics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And now you have groups like you know Mike Levin's uh, set up at Tufts University and bioelectricity, which you know is doing fascinating work in in, in this whole area of you know altering membrane potentials. Uh, you know he grew <laughs> he recently took you know a frog and it, and with with electrical signals you know he he took the tail and he turned it into an eyeball. Uh, he talked about creepy things, but <laughs> so not just using electricity. Yeah, you're just using electrical signals. That reminds me of you know some of my friends work with uh, TDCS or uh, you know right, transdermal right, right. transcranial sure. direct current stimulation. Sure. To sure. so this yeah I mean all this stuff is pretty yeah. unique and fascinating to me. Yeah, so I think like I, I, that seems interesting in terms of like just seeing who are the yeah I think it's in in this space it's like how do you disambiguate the hype from what is real and hopefully as you know we see more and more data being published on that so I'm actually curious to dive into it a little bit literally skin cells are transformed into like I I well, I guess I cells using electricity. I think he created an eyeball like he he morphologically Whoa. you know it was a. Uh, you know, this whole sort of biomembrane, bioelectrical, uh, you know, signaling is a more of a physiological dynamic. It, right. It's not controlled at the level of the genes. So, I mean, he created an actual eyeball. Now, I don't remember. That's I, wild. I have to look back at yeah. the paper yeah. to see if the eyeball could see. Uh, right. That's a different thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, so it, the fascinating thing to me beyond that is that, you know, whether you're talking about electricity or magnetism or light, um, it, the effects of broader physical forces on gene expression, you know, whether it be the astronauts that's hung out up there in the space station for a year and have all these biologic changes due to microgravity and solar radiation. I mean, it all is part of the big picture. And so um, I, I just, you know, I, I enjoy seeing how uh, sort of the micro and the macro level dynamics come together to uh, achieve some of these types of outputs. Yeah. Are any of these interventions making it to your own personal routines? I mean, if you know, 
I'm, I'm curious, you know, are you looking at intermittent fasting as something you do daily or, or are you living a life, you know, pretty standard Western, you know, lifestyle? You know, I, um, I exercise, I, I do all the basic stuff. I'm a big proponent of natural products. So, uh, I have my own from my previous company. I have my own sort of routine. I'm, I'm big on, uh, you know, cinnamon and turmeric and a lot of sort of the common spices that have years of you know, peer-reviewed literature uh, and, and, and very unique mechanisms of action that current drugs just don't work with. So and I think those are legitimate uh, in sort of sort of daily supplement purposes. Um, I, fasting, I know, that'd, that'd be like telling me, you know, <laughs> if you tell me the answer to life extension and uh, living a thousand years is to, you know, stop having sex, then I, I, I don't think I'm going to go down that path. So I, fasting is just one of those things that, I love food. Uh, not that I need, a, you know, a, a nasty Western style diet, but I just like to eat. So yeah, it is fair. I mean, I think I think the outcome is not just just years of life. It's also quality of life. Exactly. I remember yeah. seeing there's a discussion around there's a recent paper published studying Korean eunuchs and showing that the eunuchs had 10, 12, 15 years extended life than their equivalent uh uh, counterparts that weren't castrated, you know, leading to the hypothesis that testosterone, um, you know, might not be optimal for longevity. And should people consider castration, if you know, to the extreme to extend longevity, them. right? And it's like I think I think, and then it's like the balance, like okay, um, you know, does one optimize for years of life? in that scenario or is it a quality of life that's a big part of it and of course you know there's you know quite severe effects of being castrated beyond just you know sex i mean you know it's such an important um signaling factor for both men and women but especially for men the whole dynamic <laughs> of psychogenomics and the ability even you know to think and positive outcome affecting gene expression, uh, that one is off the table. <laughs> Would be off the table for me, needless to say. Uh, there's a benefit sort of just to being happy. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, the only <laughs> I other agree. Thing, I, I, I agree I, with that as well. I wanted to mention based on your last question is um, I, I, I really do think that we need to do a lot better in terms of living based on our evolutionary understanding. Uh, and whether that is, you know, we, we do, you know, we are humans, we have a human genome, but uh, we contain the genes of all species that came before us. And, you know, all the stuff that kills us uh, at some point, yes, was good for other organisms, whether that's high blood sugar levels or inflammation or even cancer uh, in terms of the you know, a billion years ago is the reason I guess single cell organisms first got together to make multicellularity. But clearly, we need to live uh, based on our evolutionary understanding. And if we were drinking six cokes a day and uh, going out of our way for large amounts of inflammation and whatever we do, it's yeah, it's not good. Yeah, we, we gotta talk to we gotta talk to the president about having his uh, diet coke routine reduced yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. How can our listeners follow your work or, or, or get involved? I mean, it sounds like there's a bunch of different threads, either by following BioCork or there's a way to contribute to conversation with 
uh, you know, the think tanks, you know, how, how do people get in touch and get involved? Yeah, I mean, contact us on the website. Um, we are a very open company. We are very transparent about everything we're doing. Um, and get in touch. We, we uh, disclose a lot of what we're, you know, our research collaborations, different things we're active in. And um, use, the, use the website. Get in touch directly with me if there's any questions. I love talking uh, about what we do. I'm passionate about it. And I believe strongly in it. And, um, you know, the one message I like to get out there is that uh, although this industry, and though I'm not in big pharma anymore technically, but I'm still part of the the system per se, um, although, you know, we've been seen as uh, boring or evil or always promising things that may be 30 years away, um, we are at a very unique time right now where if we do things the right way, um, we are going to be translating a lot more human opportunities and affecting the human condition sooner than most people think. So it's a very positive future. I just want to get that point across. Absolutely. We'll leave it at that. Thanks so much. And I hope to have you back on the program and, 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 and have updates as we're uh, curing diseases and allowing people to live happier and longer. Thanks so much, Ira. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure.